Kyle is a humanitarian aid worker for Save the Children. While his main office is in London, he spends a significant amount of time on the ground responding to emergency situations around the globe. His work has taken him to Nepal in the aftermath of the 2015 earthquake, and more recently to Bangladesh in response to the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis. In his role as communications manager, Kyle is entrusted with telling the stories of people in need of the world's attention. I've often wondered what leads someone to work in the humanitarian field. There's a difference between working behind a desk all day in the comfort of your office versus spending time in the field where you witness both the best and the worst of humanity and are confronted with the reality of those you are trying to support. In a job like this, how do you sustain balance in your life when you're exposed to such trauma and intense pressure? I'm Yasmina Sakat, and you're listening to Not That Original, a podcast that brings you stories that may not be so different from your own. Kyle, tell me about yourself. Tell you about myself, there's so much to tell you. Um... I work at Save the Children International as Global Humanitarian Communications Manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in London, uh, UK, I grew up in around Vancouver, actually, Canada, and uh, Toronto is my adult Canadian home <laughs> since like uh, before I came here. How long have you been in London for? Been in London three years now. And what brought you to London? Uh, I was work. Um, I was working um, at the same organization back in Canada for two years. Um, it was a mildly interesting role. This became a more interesting role, so I just made the le- the leap to our international headquarters, and uh, and haven't really looked back. Can you tell me where you work and what you do? Yeah, so I work at Save the Children International as Global Humanitarian Communications Manager. What does that mean? That means I work with our emergency response team. So Save the Children does a whole number of programs. A lot of them are about, it's about half and half humanitarian and long-term development. So I work on the humanitarian side. That's new emergencies, uh, natural disasters, conflict. Uh, so I work in our media and communications team around those issues, looking to profile the response, get the right information out to general public, but also staff around the organization. We're a big uh, organization, so we, we there's, there's a constant need to... Um, supply fundraisers, media teams, CEOs, people who are out uh, in the public and public facing with the right information. So what are some examples of humanitarian crises you intervened in this year? Um, It's been a busy year in the humanitarian world. That's a shorthand way of saying that the world is getting worse and more dangerous for a lot of people. It started, I I had two major projects, I suppose, this year. Um, Earlier in the year, I was in Uganda for about a month at the point where um, the South Sudanese refugee population had reached about a million. And there was a big refugee funding summit in Kampala at the time. So um, we were there to, to really push our own agenda for refugee education um at the time um that so so that w- that was a big sort of summertime uh, piece of work that i did and later in the year i ended up working in bangladesh for about a month working on the rohingya crisis that was a huge tragedy what was your experience like on the ground um it was really 
interesting and chaotic and uh, when you work in humanitarian uh the pieces that you that, that you touch are almost always in the news but this one in particular was really um trying both kind of emotionally as well like the stories that you hear and my job is to write down people's stories essentially um you know are we're, we're there to launch fundraising appeals uh to get leaders attention um to to bring you know sort of the human element into the media which is often missed in sort of the the the, the greater geopolitics of the um uh, of the issue but um you know i was there in early days and what that meant was i was one of the first people i was the first person from uh save the children who arrived uh and and was able to see what was going on so um i i guess <laughs> there's no that word or you know sentence that describes what that is like but um it was absolute chaos at that point in time it was just after the attacks of um 25th of august in myanmar and up to 10 15 20,000 people uh were coming into bangladesh per day and the needs were just absolutely immense and as an organization we were moving very very quickly to meet all of those needs but that requires a lot of things you got to move staff around you've got to set up an office you've got to basically set up an all a whole operation from scratch in as little time as you possibly can and uh, uh, meanwhile you're there to hear people's stories and they're horrific so that's what you take away from it do the stories stay with you they do it's it, it it's almost the, the nice thing about the work to some extent is that um, I'm not a journalist although I kind of play one in the field when you're out there and you're sitting in people's huts and you're hearing their stories you're getting that down their details you know the the end goal here is to help fund this response and that's that's what we're doing we're supplying the information the stories the human content that allows other people to connect closely to the work that we do and ultimately you know we we've had a lot of success in in funding this um but yeah their stories stick with me but what sticks sticks with me even more than that is them wanting to have their story told there's no you you often that your instinct is to go into an interview and think oh this person is going to be you know maybe awkward about telling their story and mm. and maybe they're not going to tell me the full story yeah. or um you know they're, they're worried about repercussions for them but usually it's like yes please do absolutely anything you can please and thank you tell everything and uh they're just so so thankful that someone has come to listen to them because they have lived their entire lives under persecution and for them this moment is just sort of the culmination of a lifelong existence which has amounted to you know a, what we now know is basically mass atrocities in in Myanmar so um they're just so thankful tearful even that someone was there to listen because they've never seen a foreigner before and suddenly uh the world's attention is on them and their family and uh you know they they I think understand that um it is actually helping us in some way um do more it sounds like there's a huge responsibility and trust put in you I think there's a lot of trust put in the whole team, to be honest. Um, I mean, 
you've got everyone uh, in in a field office who um, has some sort of specialty you know whether it's you know we've got the toilet guy who knows all about toilets and someone else who does water points and someone else who knows about um, setting up mobile health clinics and what diphtheria looks like the needs are just so great and immense and they touch almost everyone who's arrived in Bangladesh that you can't do one without the other and um, uh, it, it, the responsibility is, is on us to to work with speed and I think that's the thing um, it's not you know like if you're a doctor in the west if you're here in the UK people come to your office mm-hmm. um, and you, of course you're doing good work but the onus is almost completely opposite right like if you're in the field and there's a sudden, sudden emergency now it's on you to reach as many people as you possibly can. And that's where the responsibility comes in. And I f- think that some people might feel pressured by that, but ultimately not really. I think we're, you know, we're, 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 it drives you to do more and to go faster. You were saying that your experience in Bangladesh was very different than other places. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, the, the, um, this particular crisis is, uh, is very different um, compared to other similar situations. I have not personally worked, for example, on the Syria conflict, but many of my colleagues have and have spent a lot of time in Lebanon and Jordan working in the refugee camps there. The The difference with the Bangladesh refugee response is the simple fact that this is persecution, plain and simple. Um, these are people who are largely literate. They're not allowed to go to school. If they do go to school, the only thing they're allowed to learn is Burmese. They can't even learn their own language, Rohingya. Um, you know, uh, they, they, there's, there's very little access to any services, any education, any healthcare, any anything. Um, and they are under the barrel of a gun of the, of, you know, militias and military. Um, the difference with Syria, and it's not to say that Syria is a, a better situation by any means, but... You know, um, colleagues who have spent a lot of time with Syrian refugees don't have someone to blame necessarily. It is a multifaceted conflict that they feel caught up in. And if they they don't necessarily feel targeted in the same way that mm-hmm. I think the Rohingya feel targeted just for the simple fact that they are Rohingya. And so it, it, it is that story, which is very different, I think, than other conflict scenarios where people are just sort of caught up and they have to they have to leave because of safety reasons. These people have to leave because they are forced off their land. So I guess the discriminatory aspect of the situation brings out a different feeling? It's a different feeling and it is less hopeful, more helpless. Not to say that there's no hope and there's no help. There is. But, you know, again, if you're speaking to a Syrian, often they will say, yeah, you know, like one day when the conflict settled down, like I would like to go back and I would like to do the thing that I was doing before. You know, I miss my house, I miss my neighborhood, I miss my family. These people will never say that and haven't. They do not want to go back. They're not welcome back. They live in fear, even on the other side of the border. It's something that, you know, it's a lifelong uh, issue that they have faced and it's just come to this point and you know the, for them it is very difficult to recover from that kind of discrimination have you ever been in danger on one of your missions i think that i mean i i haven't personally really i mean there's always the element of danger i suppose right you're go, you, you are going to 
you know, um, unstable places, shall we call them. I mean, you know, Uganda is a is a stable country, you know, but you're also at the South, South Sudanese border. And, you know, from, that, from, from time to time, there are militia activity, that, you know, that happens or, um, or you know, I'd, you could just get stuck somewhere. You know, it's, it's actually very easy if it's raining, your car breaks down. You know, um, you, you just have to plan ahead. And sometimes the, the greatest um, fear that you have is actually that road safety element, which is which is interesting. Most people don't think about that in terms of humanitarian work. But I think I don't have the stat off the top of my head, but it's somewhere around 80 percent of humanitarian aid worker death is due to uh, traffic so and road safety. Road accidents? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, you know, it. it it happens, and, and and you know, and I think back to a couple different trips that I've done. Where, I mean, I remember we're, we're driving through the the Ethiopian um, uh, Somali region desert towards the Somaliland border on the north side, and there are no roads. Like suddenly, you're you're two hours away from the nearest building, really, just driving through brush, and you know, anything could happen to you. So it's not. I never really felt danger necessarily, but it's isolated right like uh you're not necessarily where the action is always and that that in and of itself is kind of interesting although um on the danger side i do have colleagues who have absolutely faced issues that i have not just recently uh, we had to um, move some staff out of our yemen country office um, due to the conflict there and uh you know typically when we have to evacuate staff any agency um evacuating staff is is precautionary um there was actual gunfights and grenade attacks in the street right outside the office where people had to hole up in in safe houses and um for several nights to to be to be you know sure that they were going to make the the journey to the airport once it was finally opened so um they you know i that there is an element of that throughout the system so what was the first country you were deployed to the first country um, the first that I crisis. went, yeah, in my current role, so I've been here about three years now, um, the first one was actually Nepal, after the Nepal earthquake, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting now that I've spent some time in Bangladesh to think back to a natural disaster in Nepal, which is a very different feel than a conflict scenario, um, and yet much more visibly shocking, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get into the country in the first place. The airport wasn't functional entirely. And when you do land, you know, buildings are down, right? Like people are in the streets, like they're, they're, they're intense. They're out in the open for fear of act- aftershocks and other things. So like that crisis was very in your face, you know, as a first emergency, when you first arrive, you're like, whoa, what am I getting into here? This is crazy. Um, but the spirit of people was very different almost in a natural disaster. I mean, sure, 9,000 people died in that earthquake, but communities really come together. And I, 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 I don't know how to, hmm. Yeah. Communities really do come together really quickly to help each other. And at that point you feel a lot of, uh, they're they're very resilient and you're basically there to support their resilience 
um, as opposed to, you know, you realize that you're not the answer. And I think that is actually quite helpful, right? When you arrive and you're like, okay, you know, you're not there to save the world necessarily. The systems and the structures and the people and the communities are in place to really help themselves. And, you know, you're just there to, to, to nudge a little bit further with a little bit of funding, with a little bit of, you know, help in, in the work that we do, get them on the right path. After working for three years in your current role, what do you know today that you didn't know then? I think that, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think that I, um, I collect a lot of experiences in my role, not necessarily a lot of knowledge, um, but it might be that resilience aspect. I mean, I'm now, I, would, I spoke about resilience in Nepal, that was three years ago. If you asked me two and a half years ago about resilience, I don't know if I would quite understand it, but now that I've understood uh, multiple different scenarios, I've worked on a drought, I've worked on a hunger crisis, an earthquake, um, you know, gang conflict in Central America, um, you know, mass atrocities against the Rohingya in Myanmar, what I am understanding is that humans across multiple uh, hardships are really remarkably inspiring uh, creatures. You know, what we can go through and recover from is beyond, I think, the knowledge that most of us have in the North or the West, because we just haven't really experienced those same things. Experienced the same type of struggle. Yeah. Do you need the hope to do what you do? Hope. Yeah, I mean... The resilient, yeah, the hope sort of comes from that uh, understanding of how resilient people can be. So you know, there there is there is always hope. That, but you know, I I almost um, even though I don't even work in, for example, climate change, it's easy to like cut down your own hope sometimes and think, oh my goodness, you know, I you know we do have a a realm of expertise which is really helping people, but you know, what about? tidal flooding when the ice caps melt you know and so you, you can you, you can almost always top your own hope with some other tragedy and if your mind is sort of set to um, all the different risks that people can face uh, it can become a bit overwhelming does it get overwhelming for you um no not really in in i think there's moments where you can feel overwhelmed but you just have to kind of know your place in the order order of the universe in that point in time. You know, uh, you're not there to fix everything, but you are there to do something, even in a small piece. And I think the more that you contextualize yourself and think um, in the big picture, it really does help. But it, it's, it's quite a psychological exercise that you have to go through, you know, to, to be mindful of your place in that whole structure right mm -hmm. and then that sounds really meta but uh, you do you know when you get into your hotel after being out in the field for 14 hours or whatever you just have to take some time and think you're one person here um you did what you could today what led you down the path of humanitarian work um it was an accident and a happy one. You know, I graduated university in 2008. There were no jobs. Not that I knew what I wanted to do necessarily, but I, I took um, an internship in India and I stayed there for the better part of a year and eventually got hired at that NGO in communications. So both my my um, 
my experience with charity work um, and communications was accidental and I have the great recession to thank for that. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, like the, the first place that I worked um, and other projects as well were were much more long-term development focused you know we would you know build a school hire teachers you know it's you know this is the India project yeah yeah exactly and it was all really good but it wasn't um there's there's a there's a rush that you get when you work in the humanitarian side and suddenly you get a push notification on your phone that says there's an earthquake somewhere and now you know you've got you know about three hours to do something and it's very motivating and it's very stressful I have a lot of gray hairs that I didn't have a couple years ago <laughs> and, but at the end of the day it's just it, it, it is very personally um, satisfying but it's not just about personal satisf- satisfaction it's like just being part of a team, I guess, you know, it's again, it's, it's not about you doing it. But the, the other thing about humanitarian work, I would say, is that there's always a big group of us who work. You know, we, we've got a ton, we've got hundreds of local staff who are already there and they're do, they're going the mile. They're even donating their own um, money to the response. Um, you know, when I was in Bangladesh, all the local staff were, you know, chipped in whatever they could to buy um you know rice and we did a big sort of food distribution one day that was just out of their own pockets and that you know like it's really inspiring Mm -hmm. and um yeah you just feel part of something i guess part of something bigger yeah that ever that that elusive sort of drive that yeah you never really get there it's elusive it's always elusive (laughs) but there's you know glimpses of it and uh, it's those moments like that one, you know, like the 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 rice um, distribution where I thought, oh, like people are great. What do you find most interesting about your job? What is really interesting about the role, and I mean, this is true of almost anyone's job to some extent, right? Uh, no matter what your job is, it's the element of surprise. You don't really know what your day to day is going to be like, but I really don't know what my day to day is like. Two days before I ended up leaving on a plane to Nepal after the earthquake, I was in Berlin on holiday, you know, and then I got a text message that said, hey, there's been an earthquake, can you go? And I just said yes, and I went. And um, it just takes your life in directions that you didn't necessarily expect. And um, that's sort of the, the big side of the element of surprise, but the the, multiple, the, the micro one as well, you know. Um, I remember being in, in Bangladesh and... Um, we there was a, a long time that we couldn't do a lot of media interviews um, just because the situation was so fluid and changing all the time and we had to catch up basically to where uh, the government of Myanmar was sitting and what they mm-hmm. were saying about the response and what the government of Bangladesh was saying about the response and you know we're there to provide a service mm-hmm. right and you know you, you have to take out uh, in, yourself into context into those different political environments so we're constantly negotiating what we can and can't say whether in fundraising appeals with media interviews and so on um but there finally came a point where okay we're going to do media and i did this uh the first interview that came in i was in cox's bazaar uh in bangladesh and i got a phone call from cbc radio in toronto and they said you know can you go on the air in about 10 minutes 
I said, sure, yeah, 10 minutes is fine. And I was in the lobby of my hotel. I ran up to my room, uh, quickly went to the bathroom. And it wasn't 10 minutes. It was two minutes. And I did my first interview of that response from the toilet. <laughs> did they know that? I they did absolutely not. Yeah, no, they, I don't think they knew it anyway. I mean, there's probably <laughs> probably an echo behind me, and they're wondering, wow, what what were the acoustics like in in this? Um, the acoustics must have been good. Room, you know. But um, <laughs> so when I say you never really know what your day is going to be like, yeah. you know, we went from morning time uh, that day saying no, we're not going to do media today. We're we're not in a place where we're we're comfortable adjusting to the situation we got to figure things out with the government and next thing you know you're sitting on the toilet doing radio interviews from canada (laughs) do you see yourself doing this long term yeah i i think so i think i have um the balance right for me i mean i you know um enjoy the work that i do and i live in london i travel about 25 30 percent of the year or so but uh, i do need that time to sort of be here reflect um work a bit remotely before i'm out in the field as well and i i so i feel comfortable with what i'm doing so at least the short to medium term you know you never know what crisis is next and if you might want to go another direction but i'm i'm happy now are there any stories that really stick in your mind stories that that refugees have have shared with you or people in disaster zones Refugees' stories are almost always harrowing, and they are shocking. Um, if you work in a natural disaster, I mean, it's absolutely a personal tragedy. Someone lost their house, they lost their property, maybe, you know, um, their livestock or their children or someone they were related to was injured or killed, and that's always sad. But when a refugee speaks about being driven from their home um it (laughs) under those circumstances it's it's kind of shocking i mean i I spoke to this one person who uh told me in bangladesh that um she broke her arm so she so it was in a cast and um because she had to run out of the house as the uh, the military had set it on fire so she you know they they came into the house they shot her one son point blank right in front of him, uh, right in front of her. He died. She threw the other one out the window to save him and then went after him um, as they were setting the house on fire, broke her arm. Uh, it took her 13 days to go through the forest, only at nighttime to avoid detection, to get to Bangladesh. And that story is so common that... It's not even one story that sticks with you. It's the fact that you're now in a camp with half a million people, a city that has sprung up out of nowhere, and almost everyone has experienced something like this or knows someone who has. Uh, yeah, so it, it is shocking. You know, Just as resilient as we are as humans and helpful to one another, we're also absolutely horrible, cru- cruel creatures. I mean, it's just so hard to imagine someone doing this to another person um and that that was just the start of it you know we did a report with some of the more the most graphic stories that we could find basically just to give a picture of how institutionalized and and regular uh the 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 persecution was against these people you know you're talking about 
child rape babies being thrown from their taken from their mother's arms and thrown into flames um you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it it it's it sticks with you um on the flip side of that i think sometimes some of the more inspiring stories and weird stories can come from staff like you know i work with this one doctor who was in bangladesh with me and he told me this story about um an earthquake in india this was like 30 years ago and Mm -hmm. um he was with a a small local organization and he uh was had to drive from the city where he was staying i I can't remember the name of it right now but that's you know he he was uh, on his way to the disaster zone and saw on the way there was this man with a bear and they were doing a street performance and the bear was sort of like a domesticated bear of some kind um, okay. And this happens sometimes, you know, like the bear is doing tricks and it was playing for kids and, you know, throwing balls in the air and that kind of thing. And he thought, oh, my God, this is great. You know, like I'm going to take this man and this bear and I'm going to take him to the earthquake zone and entertain children because, you know, they, they've just lost everything. <laughs> now they need some sort of entertainment. And he managed to convince the man uh, to come with him and paid him out uh-huh. of his own pocket. And next thing you know, he's, he's got a driver uh the bear is in the car like sitting in the front seat of the car oh my God. <laughs> between him and the driver <laughs> and um <laughs> so you know they got to where they did and you know this this is not the kind of program that we would necessarily do today <laughs> for example as a humanitarian organization but it came from somewhere like the, the you know the fact that you work with people who look at a bear who is juggling balls on the side of the road and think oh, I can use this for for a response and to help people in in a time of need it's um it's a pretty amazing story it's a great story and it's weird and amusing and it's I so feel absurd it's absurd I feel bad for the bear but at the same time like you know at least the bear is doing some good too I, yeah. I... <laughs> well what do you do with the um I mean once you come back to London mm-hmm. um how do you deal with the stories you've you've been hearing and and the situations you've been experiencing um i think you when you come back you um you know everyone has an outlet to some degree um you know i have a a friend who's just really into to gardening and the first thing that she does when she comes home is like plant carrots you know and like that's the thing that sort of grounds you you need space to think about what you have seen and what you've done. And I think that's all you really need. You just need to give the the time and space that you think you need personally to deal with it. It's not like, you know, a set thing that you need to do or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Like you, you just, w- what makes you happy? Like when I, when I get back, um, you know, I have a dog and um, she's, she's a pug and she's absolutely lovely. And mm-hmm. I just love, um, taking her around like you know for example I go to the coffee shop and they they all know Stella as well and it just there's just something about like taking the dog to the coffee shop that they haven't seen her for a month because I haven't been there and Uh suddenly there's like six people are like oh Stella I haven't seen you in so long and it's just it there's just it brings you joy you know and you just need to seek out the moments that make you happy and um but you also have to know what makes you happy too right I think that's part of being a healthy uh humanitarian (laughs) 
Get a dog. Is my answer. Get a dog. <laughs> well, dogs are known to lift up spirits. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Kyle. Really appreciate thank you. it. And what's your pitch for donating to Save the Children? Um, you can go to savethechildren.net if you want to know more about what we do and find, um, uh, we've got a very, you know, comprehensive list of wherever you live, whether that's UK, US, Canada, Norway, uh, find your website there and see what you can do at home. Thanks for listening to Not That Original. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and feel free to share this podcast.